I have a confession to make. I have not always told you the truth. If you've listened to the past two episodes of the second page, already you've been subjected to mistruths from my own mouth. For example, in the first episode on first words, I told you that my first word was not necessarily, as my father claimed, Harris, but that my mother insisted it was in fact Hari. This is not strictly true. Yes, my mother has on occasion said that my first word was Hari, but she's always actually just been joking about it. It's generally agreed upon in my family that my first word was Harris. Now in my defense, I didn't realize that this was so when I first recorded that story. I had always assumed that my mother had been telling the truth rather than joking, so in that way, my mother inadvertently told me a mistruth. But even if we accept that I was trying to be honest in that story, there have been other little exaggerations, though I haven't really even spoken that much on this show. There has somehow been ample time for me to embellish, to just say little things that aren't, in the strictest sense, true, to make the stories better, more interesting, more complicated. I've been thinking a lot recently about truth, how we know what's true, what methods we determine the truth by. And I can't really think about truth without also thinking about lying. How do we know how to trust other people when they tell us things? And how do we know how to trust ourselves? When I first started this show, I told my friend and collaborator Amanda Lazada that I wanted only true personal stories. And she said to me, I don't understand what this obsession is with true stories. And when it comes right down to it, I guess I don't really care that much if the stories are true. I told my initial contributors that their stories need only have the seed and sheen of truth, but even that I could forego. Because fiction, because lies, can often teach us just as much as true stories. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. I'm Harris Laparoff. This week, stories about truth and fiction. In 2005, when I was only 16 years old, I attended a summer camp. Well, they insisted that we not call it a camp. It was a school, really, for the arts. The California State Summer School for the Arts. And I attended to study creative writing, and I took a playwriting course while I was there. And my playwriting teacher there, if I'm recalling correctly, if I'm recalling truthfully, taught me one of the most important lessons about dialogue which turned out to be one of the most important lessons about life, though a little bit cynical. And the lesson is this. He told us, if I'm recalling truthfully, that people very rarely say the truth of what they actually mean. That in fact, more often, they say the exact opposite.
Since we can't talk about truth without talking about lies, a story about lies from Jen Graham. I learned to lie at my first confession. I was only eight years old, but I knew my life was boring even then. I was a genuine goody two-shoes, teacher's pet, a bit of a snitch, and in bed without a fuss by nine o'clock. My most egregious affront to authority at that point in my life had been wearing my Sailor Moon sweater to student council photo day against my mother's wishes, and somehow I didn't feel too bad about that. Well, there I was, sitting in the pews with a few friends from my catechism class, chatting quietly in the candlelight about what sins we were going to confess. They all had such interesting stories. Light violence against their younger siblings, shoplifting incidents they thought God should know about, jealousy and intrigue. If Hollywood had taught me anything, it was the stuff of a good confession, and my friends had it. All I had was some stupid Sailor Moon sweatshirt and the time I accidentally spoiled my baby brother on the truth about Santa Claus. It was then, under the watchful gaze of a dozen Christs, that I committed to taking my first step into the deception of adulthood. I was going to break a commandment by breaking a commandment. I was going to lie. Curtain closed or open, my teacher asked as I nervously approached the box that apparently had a man inside. Closed, I answered timidly, losing an ounce of nerve now that it was real. There was a rustling from inside, and then I was ushered through the door. I blinked in the dim light and looked around. It was bigger on the inside than I imagined, and a wooden bench was waiting for me against one wall. It popped lightly as I sat down and let my feet dangle just above the floor. Whenever you're ready, came a deep voice from nowhere, like the voice of God. Without missing a beat, I crossed myself and began robotically. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession. I took a deep breath and closed my eyes. I was Catherine Zeta-Jones in the Mask of Zorro, and the priest was a young Antonio Banderas. This was my moment. I committed adultery with my neighbor's wife. The priest coughed and the curtain rustled gently. I swallowed hard when I realized that thin, limp piece of cloth was the only thing separating me from what I imagined to be a heavenly white and righteous rage. Adultery? asked the disembodied voice of God. He sounded unexpectedly incredulous. With your neighbor's wife. I nodded, then, realizing that the priest could not see, whispered a quiet yes. I thought of Lisa, my neighbor's wife, and her bed of tulips I had dug up as a toddler to give my mom a bouquet. I had certainly done something to her, so I repeated my affirmation, this time with more resolve. I had committed adultery with my neighbor's wife. First lesson in lying, never use words you don't understand. Are there any other sins you wish to confess, urged the voice, and I could tell by the way it sounded constrained that he was holding something back. Was it holy indignation? Wrath? I was quickly, fearfully losing my conviction. I lied to a priest, I confessed hastily, holding nothing back. And I wore my Sailor Moon sweater when my mom told me not to, and I once kicked my brother, and I picked my neighbor's tulips, and I wrote on my desk, and I broke my glasses on purpose. The voice of God laughed, issued his blessing, and assigned me penance. All of that and only ten Hail Marys. Perhaps the lesson I learned from that night was wrong. I didn't learn that lying was immoral, I only learned that it was hard. I didn't learn that I shouldn't, I only learned that I'd have to be better. And like all the things I set out to do, I got better. 
Telling a good lie is a lot like writing a good story. The first ingredients are always initiative and imagination. You need an idea and you need conviction. A good liar, like a good writer, is a quiet observer of her fellow man. They say you should write from what you know, and the same goes for fibbing. Listen and watch closely, your stories are your peers. Then plant the seed in a willing audience and watch as the branches grow. I have lived the lives of thousands through my lies. I have been 23 and engaged to be married. I have been high and naked in front of a piano while my fingers tickled the keys and everyone danced to my strung out melody. I have walked a walk of shame. I have been a skater at junior nationals that retired early due to injury. I have been from California, Germany, and Ireland. I have explored sewers by flashlight and I once dove from a waterfall and felt the biting cold of the stream below steal my breath away. With each new untruth, my heartbeat quickened. Boundaries are the most fun when they're being pushed, and I love to push the boundaries of honesty. It was a vicarious adrenaline rush like no other. But the most important rule of lying is that you should always end it amicably. Throw your audience a dose of the absurd and let them call you out. Maybe there was a bear in the sewer. Maybe you broke your collarbone doing a quad axle, a jump that doesn't yet exist in the realm of possibility. Make your engagement ring edible and say that's why it's missing. Be eight years old and admit to a priest that you had sex with your neighbor's wife. Let them in on the joke and you get to share the last laugh. Lying doesn't have to be serious and it doesn't have to be hurtful. It doesn't have to be hurtful, but it can be, and that's the last lesson I learned about lying. I met someone last year who didn't believe I could lie. No matter how many eyewitnesses I paraded in front of him, he wouldn't believe me. Even when a mutual friend, someone we both trusted, corroborated an account of my brilliance, he called shenanigans and refused to hear more. He saw through every tried and true lie I had ever told. Every story about substance use, late nights with lusty men, athletic prowess, and immunity to tickling. It was all to no avail, and he even went so far as to claim I was bad at lying. His disbelief slaughtered my confidence and threw me off balance. Here I was, ironically, telling the truth, and I was being questioned. At that moment, it became my personal mission to make him a believer. I was a damn good liar, and he was going to know it. For months, I gave him all I had. I even developed a new technique, lying through text message to avoid whatever facial tells he was picking up on. Still nothing. All my best efforts came up short. But the day he admitted I was a good liar, I didn't feel so triumphant. I had imagined trumpets and glory at the conquest of a formidable enemy. I would be showered in praise and he would bask in the light of my genius. The day he admitted I was a good liar, we were in my car and I was driving. I wasn't telling a silly story about how when I'm high my clothes can't contain my soul, or how I became one in being with the earth when I was tripping on shrooms. It wasn't a joke, and there wasn't a punchline. Since graduating college, a lot had happened. I felt dull and empty. I felt wrong. It was a really offensive joke that no one enjoyed. I'd had my heart broken and I'd learned to forgive, but I'd lost something of myself in that. Trying to get my life together afterwards was like swinging my fists in a china shop. Every attempt left something or someone broken. All through college, I'd been severely depressed, but I smiled and pressed on because that's just what I did. I had to pull myself up by my bootstraps more times than I can count, and I was proud of that. I was strong, and I was getting stronger with each day. 
but the old bootstraps snapped unexpectedly and strength is a non-issue when you've got nothing to hold on to. The day he admitted I was a good liar, I was talking about my feelings honestly. I couldn't have been more sincere if I had been naked. Traffic was jammed and it seemed like a good time to open up. I talked about me, I talked about him, I talked about us as friends. But I'm fine, I finished, hitting the steering wheel with my gloved hands for emphasis. My mouth was dry and it was hard to swallow, but my face pulled my lips into a hopeful smile. I'm really fine. You know, he replied, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I used to think you were bad at lying, but you're always lying, aren't you? The static of the car radio was overwhelming as my mind worked to form a response. This was worse than when he didn't believe me. I used to relish in the big reveal and the laughs that followed, but this was something different. You don't laugh at something like this, so what do you do? Thankfully, we missed our exit and proper navigation took precedence over his sudden realization, but I still haven't said anything. The truth is, sometimes the easiest lies to tell are the hardest to give up. Sometimes the simplest lies are the most hurtful. Hail Marys would make it right with God, but how do I make it right with myself? How do I make it right with friends I couldn't bear to lose? The truth is, lying sucks. That story from Jen Graham, a native of Columbus, Ohio. Jen graduated from Oberlin in 2012. She enjoys bowling, Irish dance, and reading old newspapers. She currently resides in Oberlin, Ohio. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. Our next story from Liz Landsman. This is the story I got. This is the motto of my mother's family. Whenever Smiths gather, for weddings and funerals alike, we inevitably gravitate toward one another and set about trying to solve the collective mystery of our experiences. The stories always start that way. This is the story I got. It's a sly thing to say. It can mean, this is what everyone else said happened, but you be the judge or this is what I remember, even though no one else seems to, or this is what my sister said we saw, even though years later I remember it different and I don't know why. An acknowledgement that there is never going to be just one story, one truth. As an artist and storyteller, this phrase both infuriates me and makes perfect sense. It's so maddeningly inexact. I have to know what happened, which is to say, I want to have been there, to have experienced it myself, the only real way to know. But even that, if it were possible, wouldn't work. Events that have passed don't exist once they're over. All that's left are the impressions, experiences, memories with a short half-life. They begin to deteriorate almost the instant they're formed, which is why, years later, no one can agree on what it was that happened to us all. Even if I could arrange magically to have been present for every trauma, every fight, every death, All I would have in the end is another vague impression to add to the collective stockpile. I long to see for myself who my grandfather really was. A tyrant who stole his daughters, my mother and aunts, away from their mother, or a man who deftly removed his children from the care of a woman too irresponsible, too creative, too narcissistic to care for anyone but herself. I long to understand what it was my grandmother did or didn't do to create such a complicated sentiment, such conflicting memories amongst my mother and her sisters. 
I especially wish to understand the death of my cousin, the eldest child of the least unscathed of my aunts. I met my cousin for the first time when I was 13 years old at my grandfather's funeral. Such an excellent analogy for our family, coming together after a loss to compare notes, tell stories. Events are transformed in telling. My experiences of my cousin's death must be terribly different from the experience of his new wife, who was with him. I was studying in London, the grey, wet, unfocused fall of 2006. The school contacted me with orders to call my mother as soon as possible, and in the peeling, dingy flat over Skype, I heard my mother say that my cousin had been freediving with his wife. They were on their late honeymoon, and he had lost consciousness underwater and had drowned. I will, of course, remember him as he was in life, a rock of a person, kind, vivacious, compassionate, vulnerable, giving, but I will never part with the image that came to me then, my rock sinking. What really happened? How quickly did his wife realize what was happening? Were they alone? Did she call for help, weep, administer chest compressions? Did she pull him from the water? How far out had he been? How far under? And for how long? How long does it take to drown? Did he understand what was happening? Did it hurt? What was I doing at the moment of his death? If I never have to experience firsthand the death of a loved one, I know I should count myself lucky. But it doesn't feel lucky to be too far away to share the experience, too far to commune with my family or feel his presence to be in a place with no connection to him or myself, to be blind and dumb. I know I shouldn't wish I could have been there, but the day is coming when I will see my friend, my lover, my mother or father leave me, see it for myself, and though the rest of me will regret ever having said these words, some small part of me, the goblin storyteller and fact hoarder, will say, ah, so that is how it happens. That is how it happens. I'll be right behind you, Josephine I won't leave you waiting in between And the cigarette you bummed from me is almost burning out Liz Landsman graduated from Oberlin College in 2009. She lives and creates illustrations, paintings, and comics in Seattle, Washington. Even after everything we've seen In this sterile room with blinding lights And faces pointing down I only want to scream but still I just can't make a sound To hold my hand Our next story is about the truth and lies that you tell yourself, a story from Katie Henry. One of my first memories I have isn't true. Which sounds like a really weird thing to say, but apparently one of my earliest and most vivid memories that I have of my childhood didn't even happen. Or, well, it did happen, but it didn't happen in the same way I remember it, so I don't know what that counts as. 
this is what happened. I was maybe five or six and I was at this summer camp. It was at this place called the Lawrence Hall of Science, which is this science museum learning center in the Berkeley Hills. I think it was the first camp I ever went to. I was really into bugs and dinosaurs and looking at things through microscopes at the time. So next to the learning center was this little pond where we could go look at algae and like observe tadpoles at different stages. And I was with this group of kids and I was standing by the edge of the pond looking at a water skeeter when this boy came up behind me and pushed me in the water. And see, I remember it as this big deal, like he, he shoved me and I fell in the pond face first. I mean, it, it was shallow, I wasn't swimming. Um, and the clearest part of this memory for me is looking at my own hands in this mucky water up to my elbows, just being so shocked that he had been so mean and not knowing why he'd done it. That's where the memory ends for me with being so shocked. So when I was in high school, many years later, I was talking to my mom and I brought up this incident. I, I think I was saying something really angsty about how it was the first time I realized that people could just be mean for no reason. And I asked her if she remembered it. And she just laughed. Um, then she told me I had the whole thing wrong. The boy hadn't pushed me, he'd just bumped into me and I hadn't fallen in the water up to my elbows, I'd just gotten my shoes and socks wet. She was really surprised that I remembered it that way. E even now, she thought I was just being melodramatic when it first happened. But that is how I remember it. It, it really is. It's this totally clear memory that apparently never happened, apparently isn't true, or mostly isn't true, but it's true to me, then and, and now it's true. Even when my mom was telling me what really happened, it wasn't gonna stick, it, it couldn't like take over my memory, the memory I'd created for myself and made true by remembering it that way. It's a little crazy how fallible truth is because I was brought up, um, I was raised Catholic and there's, it's really important in that religion, I mean probably a lot of religions, that things be true, that there is a truth, a, a single truth, and you have to believe in the truth. Things are totally true or totally false and I definitely bought into that as a kid, but as I get older and see and know more things, I think things just get more complicated. But I think I also think that maybe part of growing up is getting to know the truth even better in a lot of ways. Things get grayer, but they, they also kind of get clearer because you gradually get little bits and pieces of the truth, like truth that you didn't even know existed. When you're a kid, you see the truth so, so black and white. Like, I got knocked into a pond at the Lawrence Hall of Science and because I was upset and embarrassed and mad, 
then the kid who did it, he must have meant to do that to me just because he was mean, because that's the best truth I could come up with in that moment. But then when you're older, like the, the Lawrence Hall of Science was named for one of the men who helped design the atomic bomb that killed thousands of people. I didn't know that when I was going to camp there, obviously. That wasn't part of my truth about where I grew up and what the world is like and what people can do to each other. My five-year-old brain couldn't have processed that information then. Just like my five-year-old brain couldn't process someone hurting me by accident. So I'm I'm actually okay with having a not quite accurate early memory about the pond because I think it, I still think it was true and is true for me then. It was true. It just wasn't accurate. That story was by my friend Katie Henry. Katie currently lives in New York City where she writes plays and teaches essay writing to disinterested engineering majors. She is a graduate of NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and a native of Berkeley, California. Our next story today is from Hillary Carter. Cruise ships are kind of weird, I realized, when I went on one two years ago. When they have you do the safety drill at the beginning of the cruise, you think, okay, these are the people that I'll be on the lifeboat with if this thing sinks. It's this big group of people that are all living in very close quarters with each other in a vast, empty ocean. They are all eating at the same places, swimming in the same pools, much like a school of fish. So, if you coat these fish in sunblock, add alcohol, and the knowledge that they'll probably never see any of these people ever again, leave them to roast in the sun, then you can sit back and watch their inhibitions slowly drip from them. This was my first and so far only cruise, and I was there with my family. My sister Bianca, who is generally better at people than I am, had made friends with two other passengers on the ship. Joe owned a bar in Arkansas and loved to gamble. In fact, he had been comp for this cruise because of his gambling. He had met his friend Brian on a previous cruise and brought him on this one as his plus one. Brian was from Oslo and he was tall, blonde, and muscular, like you'd expect. I was not very cool, so of course Bianca did not usually want me to hang out with her new friends. But towards the end of the cruise, I crossed paths with my sister as she was heading back to our room and I was headed to the pool. I was just in the hot tub, she said. I had to stop Brian from telling this Canadian couple about his drug dealing. Are you serious? I said. I can't say that I'd ever imagined such a healthy looking person to be a drug dealer, but I guess everyone is tall and beautiful in Norway. 
even the crackheads. Well, he seemed to know an awful lot about it, and he would have told it all to these people if I hadn't stopped him. Maybe they wanted drugs, you don't know. She rolled her eyes at me. If you see him drinking, tell him to stop. Just take it away from him. Later that evening, I found myself at the sad little cruise ship casino. Drafted into confiscating Brian's drinks, I decided the best way to do this was to drink them. He had some kind of comp card that allowed him free drinks at the casino bar, so money was not an obstacle for him. As it turned out, money wasn't much of an issue for him in general. My sister was over at one of the card tables watching Joe lose more money at blackjack. Apparently he had a bit of a problem. I was working my way through Brian's Long Island while he was trying to explain his legitimate job to me and this other woman, Don. She was an older woman from Connecticut, one of the casino regulars. So, you're a photographer. Brian had been drinking continuously since the afternoon and was obviously pretty far gone. Yeah. I found this hard to believe. Like, what do you take pictures of? Aerial photography, like from airplanes. Don wanted to know how much he made. Between that and the drugs, I take in about a million a year. But the dealing is so stressful. Forget drug dealer. I'm sitting next to a Norwegian drug lord. Yeah? So many people owe me money. I never know who's going to be waiting for me when I go back to my apartment. And I don't want to go to jail. Well, I hear jail in Norway is like rehab. I said jokingly. That is true, but I still don't want to go back to jail. Alcohol makes everything take a few seconds to sink in. Wait, wait. Back to jail? Don did not seem alarmed by this at all. Oh, Brian, honey. Jail was not so bad. I was popular there because I had brought in a cell phone past the guards but I still do not want to go back. Don asked the question I didn't want to ask. What were you in for? Mm. He seemed to be searching for the right word. Manslaughter. Mm. When you're drunken, I definitely was. Everything is so delayed that fear feels more like a cold slush dripping from your brain to your heart. What? I'm sure you didn't mean to, Brian. Mm, not manslaughter. Mm, violence. Well, great. At least he's not a murderer. You're a good kid, Brian. You don't deserve a life like that. Don reassured him. I was beginning to wonder what kind of people she normally hung out with. And... This one time, not to be racist, but these, he swore, these Pakistanis came to my house to try to rob me. Poor thing, you're such a good kid, Brian. I wish she would stop saying that, as it was increasingly apparent that he was anything but. He put his head in his hands. I was not a good kid that night. Bianca was back. I finally convinced Joe to stop playing. Brian, I'm taking you back to your room. You've had way too many. 
I'm sitting there and thinking, I'm supposed to do something, right? Crap, I, uh, I can't think. Bianca, I, Hillary, I'll see you back at the room. She glared at me like she used to when I'd been playing with one of her toys for too long. Although he protested feebly, Brian went with her. I don't remember stumbling back to my room and back into bed, but I know I did. When I woke up, Bianca was in her bed, so I guess she hadn't been murdered after all. I told her what Brian had said. Her eyes widened. Whoa! He didn't say anything about that when you were walking him back to his room? No, but... Bianca grinned. I get this. When we got to his door, he asked me, Do you have any Norwegian in you? And I said, No, I'm, I'm Irish-Italian. And he said, Would you like some? Oh. My. God. But as Bianca was telling me this, I was thinking to myself, that the sad part is that Brian was so gorgeous that I'm pretty sure that line has worked before. When we had stopped laughing, Bianca said, Yeah. I was like, I'm going to bed. Good night. I guess I'm not going to visit him in Oslo. He invited you? Yeah. Yeah, maybe not. We ran into him later that day. He looked about as hungover as a physically flawless person could. I don't remember much of last night, but I think I said some things I should not say, he said. My sister and I don't always get along, and I remember joking to someone that I hoped we would not kill each other by the end of this trip. The truth was, I had to be careful someone else didn't kill her first. Hilary Carter, Oberlin class of 2009, is a former writer for the Dead Here Footsteps and the Semi-Automatic Players. Hilary has contributed to all three episodes of the second page to date. She now resides in Columbia, Missouri. That's all for this week's episode of The Second Page, a bit of a short episode this week. To catch it again or submit a story for next week, visit makesomethingeveryday.com slash second page. Once again, that's makesomethingeveryday.com slash second page. Next week's theme is names. Thank you to all of the storytellers. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Hillary. Much of the music used in this episode is available under a Creative Commons non-commercial with attribution license, which means that you are free to use it and remix it any way you like. We used music from Poddington Bear, Nine Inch Nails, Josh Woodward, and Night Owl, among others. Please check the website. We'll list these artists. Please support these artists. A special thank you to Zoe Keating for letting me use her music. 
please check her out at zoekeating.com. She is really, really awesome. Thank you to WOBC for putting me on the air this winter. This has been The Second Page with Harris Laparoff on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. We'll be back next week with stories about names. We may not be on WOBC, but we will definitely be on the internet. So find us there. Thank you for listening. Down beside the west side, girl. Sat my ass down beside the west side, girl. I said, Well, this is better one crazy night. Well, baby, won't you come along with me tonight? Now, that west side girl gonna rock my east side world. Now, I got a west side girl gonna rock my east side.